Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, May 25th, 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator for this morning's meeting. The share ID for Friday, May 23rd, is 6383. That's 6383. This morning, A Vision for You presents, by God's grace, and the 12 steps set free. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. The real advantage of these steps is that they are a specific method for producing a personal transformation, a change in the way a person thinks, feels, and behaves. With respect to our binge foods, we have been rendered completely neutral. No fight, no temptation. The problem has been removed. We have been set free. Here to speak this morning about this freedom is Sharon H., a recovered compulsive overeater who resides in Colorado. Sharon is a big book enthusiast and a loyal messenger of Overeaters Anonymous, eager to carry the message of the program of recovery. And welcome to the line, Sharon. Good morning, Leah. This is Sharon. Can you hear me? Yes, indeed. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and I just want to also welcome everyone out on the line who's listening today. Um, I thank you for this privilege to be able to uh, share this morning regarding uh, something that's very meaningful to me, and that is God's grace and how the 12 steps set us free. And I would like to start out by saying the serenity prayer um, because uh, I just need that. I just need to do that. <laughs> So, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And that was so much a part of my problem. I didn't know how to accept anything that I didn't think I could change, and I wasn't willing to change the things I could, which were my own defects of character, and I certainly had no wisdom to know the difference. So by God's grace and the 12 steps of, I'm going to give sort of a brief chronological order of my years in the 12-step rooms, uh, but I um, <clears throat> came into the 12-step rooms in 1975 in Emotions Anonymous, and then two years later uh, acknowledged and admitted to the core of my being that I was a true alcoholic, even though I didn't believe that when I came in. And so by God's grace and uh, working the 12 steps, Steps. I've been free from the bondage of alcohol since uh, December 26, 1987. And then I came into the OA program in 1981, and it's been a long, struggling journey uh, with the food addiction issue. But by God's grace and the 12-step big book study OA Vision for You phone line meeting, which I began listening to in July of 2012, I have now been set free, uh, like all of us can be, from the bondage of food addiction, recovered, maintaining a 30-pound weight loss since um, May 
2013. So I am just so very grateful. I was 33 years old the first time I attended my first meeting of Emotions Anonymous. I was 45 when I got sober. I was 70 when I began listening to the Vision for You phone line meeting, and I'm now uh, 71. So almost half my life has been spent in the 12-step rooms of Emotions Anonymous, AA, Al-Anon, Alateen at one point with my daughter, ACA, and OA. So I am a slow learner. Um, I know it all but didn't realize how truly sick I was and that had to be humbled and humiliated into the gift of desperation many times so I could become teachable and willing to live and practice this new design of living, of uh, being able to live one day at a time clean, sober, and abstinent. Uh, the song Amazing Grace has real meaning to me. I'll kind of share that in my my story, but uh, the first stanza of that is Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, a lost soul, but now I'm found, was blind, spiritually blind, but now I see. And of all the names I wanted others to know me by, wretch sure wasn't one of them. The dictionary definition of wretch is a miserable and pitiable person, unsatisfactory in ability or quality, causing misery and grief. No, I wanted to be known as an outstanding achiever, a super mom, a loving wife adored by her husband, able to handle all tasks with superior ability, and admired by everyone, especially my peers, my employers, and later on in my life, definitely wanted that um, attention of men. And yet, before God saved me, I was a wretch, emotionally and spiritually brokenhearted, a lost soul and spiritually blind, and I didn't even know it or believe it. Um, so by God's grace and the 12 steps set free, um, God, I just have a couple definitions here that have been so meaningful to me, when I, especially when I began listening uh, to the Vision for You meeting line. So uh, regarding God, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. That's on page 164 in the big book. Um, the other one that means very meaningful to me is on page 66, the sunlight of the spirit, and I choose to call that the Holy Spirit. And also um, a God who uh, is um, full of grace and love. And the grace in the Random House College Dictionary, the freely given unmerited favor and love of God or a higher power and set free, released from something that controls, restrains, burdens, etc. And uh, what I needed to be relieved of was pride, my pride. I was preoccupied with myself, seeing myself as more important than others, or wanting to be somebody other than me because I thought they, um, they had what I wanted and I didn't know how to get it, and those around me. Obsession, an idea that overpowers all other ideas a persistent, disturbing preoccupation with an often unreasonable or irrational idea, so strong that it can make us believe things that aren't true. Allergy, an abnormal reaction to food, beverages, or other substances. Compulsion, craving, an irresistible impulse to perform what is often an irrational act, a physiological response, the body takes over, the mind is no longer in control, unable to resist with one's unaided willpower. And on page uh, Roman numeral 13, 
um, this is what I didn't get when it came to the food addiction. I certainly understood it with the alcohol, but it's we of Alcoholics, and it's the forward to the first edition, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and that's found in the forward to the first edition that was printed in 1939. And um, so just a little snapshot of my background that got me up to where I started in the 12-step rooms in 1975. My parents were Irish Catholic. They were very hardworking, middle class, very, very devout and committed to their Catholic religion and to our family. I was surrounded by lots of grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins, and they were all committed to the Catholic religion. I am the oldest of five children, and from an early age, I remember being so fearful and insecure on the inside, but putting on a brave front of being fearless and a risk taker. So my outside never matched what was going on inside uh, my mind and my heart. I was a skinny child, and I loved sweets of any kind from a very early age. My mom always had a home-cooked uh, dessert as part of our dinner meal. I hated vegetables, and we had very strict rules regarding food. If I did not eat all my vegetables, which most of them I hated except for green beans and tomatoes, I was sent to bed and not allowed to have dessert. I believe in my pre-alcoholic mindset, this began to fuel my craving for sweets and sugar art sugar items that I did not get very often as a child. One of my major binge foods later on in life was one that I was uh, not allowed to have both of them, even though they came in a package of two. Um, I felt deprived regarding the foods that I really wanted to eat from an early age. Our family was very, very strict with lots of rules. We always ate as a family, only three meals a day, no snacks allowed, and there always seemed to be this underlying sense of tension at mealtime. It was not a pleasant, relaxed kind of atmosphere. Uh, when I was 10 years old and just beginning the fall semester of fifth grade, I contracted rheumatic fever. I was in the hospital and they thought I had polio. The last night before I was sent home, I was crying because my legs and my arms hurt so much. The next day they ran the test that confirmed it was rheumatic fever. I was in the hospital for 30 days and then home in bed for five months. I could not get out of bed even to go to the restroom and had to use the bedpan. Oh, how I hated that bedpan. And yet I did not feel sick, so this made it much harder to accept these rules that I had to follow. Uh, and while in the hospital, the nurses would bring me chocolate malts and ice cream. They said to fatten me up because I was so skinny. I really loved this freedom to have some of my favorite foods each day. Uh, when I got back home, I kept up all my studies and my homework, and I was so excited when I got to return to school in February of that year. Instead of being welcomed by my classmates, I was shunned and ignored. I was devastated and hurt and could not understand. And again, it was always all about me. You know, even though here I am, um, my parents, the sacrifices that they did uh, to uh, you know, try and make this uh, bedridden stance that I had to be in. My, my father could make anything, so he made a bed that would, you know, rise up like a hospital bed, bed does. They bought the first TV that uh, got to be in my room, and I did, to ha did, did get to have my own room. But again, all I could think about was, you know, what I was missing out on, what I wasn't getting to do. And so again, always that mindset of either a victim or fearful, uh, insecure. 
when I asked one of the classmates why I why this was happening, they didn't want anything to do with me. She told me they were so sick of hearing from Sister that what a wonderful student I was, even though I was sick. Sister had posted all my homework on the board and said they should uh, all be just like me. So this event started the obsessive mindset that I desperately needed the approval of my peers more than any authority figures. Another sick, disordered, distorted idea starts to take hold in my mind. More distorted fears growing within. The other two major things that added to my fear growing up were my mom's mental illness and my father's temper and fits of rage. Uh, neither one of them were addicted to anything. They were very devout in their religious practices. But both of these problems were not public knowledge outside of our home. A broken mom and dad doing the very best they knew how through many trials and tribulations. As I uh, entered into my teen years, that was the beginning of my even knowing about my mom's mental illness, even though it had started years ago after my um, sister Barbara was born. I was four years old when she was born, and um, evidently my mom went into a severe postpartum depression. But we didn't know any of that then, and it wasn't until I was 12, one of the times my mom was hospitalized, and we were just told she was away that she kind of had a nervous breakdown and uh, that she, you know, she'd be coming back. And I just uh, remember my mom coming back and, and uh, she couldn't remember where the silver, silverware drawer was and things like that. But this was just the, the beginning of a mental illness that continued on and became more severe because she wasn't diagnosed correctly until I was 29 years old. Uh, so there was a lot of fear around my mother's my mother's behavior and uh, these times that she would just not be there and my grandparents would come over to take care of us while my dad worked. So this was going into my teenage years and I did start becoming very rebellious at this time. And this is when I started being obsessed with food, my weight, dieting, and my appearance. I was always comparing myself to my friends and always feeling inferior that one of them was, was thinner than I was or was prettier than I was. I mean, I was just so focused on that stuff. And I so wanted to be the star. I always wanted to be exceptional, and yet most of the time I was so afraid that I wasn't even average. So in my teen years, I began drinking at 14, first for fun and then to blot out the harsh realities of life that I did not understand. Um, I got married when I was 18 years old. I had just turned 18 in October, got married in January, and I had dated my uh, husband for two years in high school, and um, my parents, again, had very, very strict rules regarding dating. I wasn't even allowed to even date until I was 16. And, um, you know, we always used to laugh at, uh, in the, you know, I was in parochial school, and every once in a while they'd have what we called the God Squad that would come in and uh, it was always for the high school students about, you know, you can't go steady, you can't do this, you can't do that. And so I know that um, as I dated my husband for two years, towards the end of those two years when I was a senior, it was getting harder and harder for us to, um, you know, not do this, uh, what they used to call making out or petting. And, of course, the rules, boy, I knew the rules about a Catholic school. You did not have sex until you were married, and, and it was an awful thing. And then after you got married, it was perfectly okay. So um, 
when I got married, there was a secret surrounding the marriage that um, we did not tell anyone about. Uh, but I had had a miscarriage on my 18th birthday when we did go that, you know, too far. Found out I was pregnant. We were planning to get married anyway, but you weren't supposed to get married in the Catholic Church at a big wedding if uh, you were pregnant. But we went ahead and planned the big wedding. And, um, and then in December, about maybe the week before Christmas, I remember we were out shopping. And I thought I was having my period, and I called the doctor, and he said, no, get home immediately. You're having a miscarriage, and come and see me in the morning. And I had gone to the priest at the church that I went to, and I had confessed uh, once I knew that I was pregnant. And he said, well, can't you just tell your parents? And I said, no, my father would kill me, and it would kill my mother. I remember saying those very words. So I do know that I carried a tremendous amount of guilt and shame into my marriage uh, because I truly believed that I had been punished for uh, choosing to have um, a big wedding in the, you know, in a mass, uh, even knowing that I was pregnant. And of course, that was before I, I had the miscarriage. So um, I'm sure that really uh, hindered my ability to be the kind of partner to my husband that I was meant to be because I carried so much shame and guilt that I never felt comfortable with uh, sexual relations after we got married. And I we ended up having three children, and I remember when I had my first child, which was um, uh, 13 months after um, we got married, I, I had so much fear in my heart and my mind all the time that I was pregnant that God was going to punish me again and my, my child would be very deformed or something terribly wrong with my child. And instead, this beautiful baby girl was born. And then I had another child um, six months later. That's when I gained my most weight. I usually weighed around 100 to 110. I'm five feet tall. But I had to wear my uh, maternity clothes home from the hospital. And then six months later, I'm pregnant again. And so I never was able to lose that weight, and I did go up to 165 pounds when I was pregnant with my first child. So after I had my second child, then um, I got on diet pills, and I loved diet pills because, you know, I I could binge once in a while, um, and then I could fast, and I had all this energy, and I got back down thin again. I was like about 102 pounds, and um, that's how I stayed thin for all those years. And then I got pregnant one more time with my last daughter. And um, my husband, as a result, like I say, looking back, I can see it differently than the way I felt at the time. Um, He was out uh, with other women, dating other women, and um, I just felt so betrayed and and so, uh, again, abandoned. And um, so we were separated for a year because I really did not want a want a divorce, but uh, we did end up getting divorced uh, after being separated for a year, and I used to be so self-righteous. I used to say, well, if I can live up to certain standards, so can you, and and then uh, what happened? Um, I got angry at the church because I was told that uh, I would have to receive communion in the rectory, not at mass, after the divorce was final, and I was, so that, you know, immediately what I did, I turned very bitter and I turned my back on God and the Catholic religion, and to me they were one and the same thing. I blamed God for my mother's mental illness, my father's temper, and my husband's betrayal. 
So there I started down a very dark road, and I did not understand back then that I was now totally separated from my true life source. I did not know God back then like I've been given the privilege to know him today, the healer and the restorer of our souls. To my distorted vision, God was a demanding taskmaster who punished severely for any infractions and sent suffering and pain to test your love for him. How wrong I was and yet so blind to the truth of God's amazing love and grace. So those three years before I remarried, I became uh, worse than my husband ever had been. I was out dancing and drinking and uh, promiscuous and all of the things that are entrenched in a self-willed, bitter lifestyle and uh, all the devastating consequences that go along with that kind of a lifestyle were part of my experience. So in my 30s and into my 40s, I struggled with severe bouts of depression. I did experience another failed marriage in my 30s, and we continued drinking, and, and this was sort of like, oh, wow, now I have arrived. You know, my husband was 10 years older than I was. I was 29 now. Uh, I had three children very young. He had three children that were already um, in their teens and one in their 20s. And we lived the good life and we, we golfed and I didn't have to work and we went on trips and, you know, everything that I thought would make the difference. Lived, moved into a brand new beautiful home, all these wonderful things. But again, my life began to unravel. And I always thought my husband was the one with the drinking problem, not me. And when uh, his daughter, who was 14, got kicked out of the house by her mother and was sent to live with us, all of a sudden I had this very angry, kind of bullying kind of teenager on my hands, and I didn't like it one bit. As things continued on, uh, first she tried to break up the marriage, and, you know, she had a rough life. I was his third wife, and his wife... His, his wife of all of his children was very bitter towards him. And so she grew up with that kind of an attitude. And, uh, but over time then, she introduced my uh, daughter, who was then 13, into drugs. And my daughter ended up in the hospital from drug overdose. So it was at that point in my life that I, I always thought I loved everybody. I thought we were going to be the Brady Bunch, fix kids, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was even a grandma at 29 because his oldest daughter had a little son, Stevie. And uh, so, again, I stayed thin through all these years. Again, obsessed with food, weight, and dieting, but I would do this binging and then fasting, binging and fasting. And... Um, and so it was just an, uh, a terrible time in my life. And... When my daughter ended up in the hospital, it was really my husband, God bless him, that got me into Emotions Anonymous because this was October of 1975, and when my daughter was in the hospital, I just fell apart, and I couldn't stop sobbing. I would just sit in the bedroom by the window, and I would just sob and sob and sob. And so he saw this article in the paper about Emotions Anonymous, and he goes, I, I think maybe this will help you, you know. Um, so I started going. I had to drive 25 miles uh, one way to get to this uh, Emotions Anonymous. This lady had started it because all of her family were alcoholics and were in AA, but she didn't have a drinking problem, but she had all of the obsessive mindset that the alcoholics did. So that's how I ended up in a 12-step room. So it took me two years, from 1975 to 1977, 
at first I just loved it. I mean, I was just so thrilled, and, and now um, I sent my daughter, Maldestar, to live with uh, her father to get her away from the environment, and uh, then shortly after that, it just everything just kind of fell apart. So we, too, became separated during that time. And um, I just didn't get it. I didn't get it that I was the sick one. I just constantly figured if these other people would just straighten up, if, you know, if this would be different, if, the, if I just had my children in this marriage and not his children, and if this and if that, I mean, it was always focused on everybody else, not that there was anything wrong with me. But then between 1975 and towards the towards 1977, I uh, I started getting involved with men in AA, and again that um, promiscuous, sick lifestyle. And then um, I went into a severe depression. In 1977, my divorce was final from my second husband, and I went into the most severe depression I'd ever experienced—a suicidal depression. And I, I didn't know what to do. My daughter was not doing well. She was still into the drugs. Um, I found I had to go back to work. I found a job. And I, I was terrible. I, w I was so depressed. And I'd go to work, and I could barely get through the day. They had one of those uh, snack things, you know, uh, honor snack, I think they called it. It was in the break room. And I would go in there as, as often as I could and grab something uh, out of that, which was always sweet or salty stuff. And I would pay for it, but then I'd run out of money, so then I'm sticking IOUs in this thing. And um, and then there were days where I just couldn't even get up and go to work. I just didn't show up for work. And I was just, uh, I just, I just fell apart. That's all I can say. And I always had such a fear of going over the edge because of my mom. And here I was. And so, you know, my solution to that in my sick mind was, you know, I just can't take this. I can't go on. You know, I'm just going to do away with myself. And I had experienced that same thing with my mother several times. So I took off. I Again, I didn't see the harm uh, that I had put it, my parents in. I left a note for them. I headed up to the mountains. I took all the money out of my savings account, which wasn't that much, but uh, turned it into money orders made out to my father and um, headed up to the mountains trying to find a motel so I could gas myself. And so the first night, um, I didn't realize that there was an odor to the gas, so it freaked me out and I didn't do it. But then I went to another mountain town and was scheduled to do it there. And um, <clears throat> But there was a problem. They were fixing the toilet, so I, they told me to come back in an hour. So I'm just parked by the side of the road, and all of a sudden, all these state patrols surround my car. And <coughs> excuse me, they, they come up to the door and say, your father's very concerned about you. <coughs> excuse me, he wants you to call home. <coughs> well, that was the last thing I wanted to do, but I did. And I never heard my father cry just one other time when my mom was hospitalized. And he said, please come home. We'll work this out. It'll be okay. Please, please come home. And I said, I just can't go on. I don't want to go on. I just can't. And he said, please come home. We'll work it all out. So I headed back down. And like I say, I couldn't separate the God thing. I, I had these very uh, black and white, right and wrong, rigid rules <clears throat> that I grew up with. 
And so when they were telling me to turn my will and my life over to God, I couldn't even come up with a God except the one I grew up with. And who would want to turn your will and your life over to a God that you thought was out to get you? And so I remember pulling over to the side of the road, and this was probably the most honest I'd been up to that point in my life. I said, God, I really don't want to go on. But if you want me to go on, you've got to help me. And I can't sort out all this God stuff that I grew up with. Please help me. And I know it was God's grace, you know, I didn't think at the time, but I, and I couldn't think of something that would show me that they, that they loved me no matter how awful I'd been, how good, bad, or indifferent I'd been. And so this thought came to me, well, the sun, the sun comes up every single morning and no human power makes the sun come up. So whatever that power is, that power must love us because if it didn't come up every morning like it, like it does, we would cease to exist. So that was my first concept of a higher power. I came back home. I'm so grateful that God saved me and spared me. I've been, I got fired from my job, understandably so. So now here I am, three kids in their teens, uh, divorced, no job. And um, I had two weeks before our, a dear friend of mine, uh, who had her own business, an uh, office placement service, said I could come and go to work for her. So I spent those two weeks doing my fourth step, my first most thorough fourth step. I had done one in the beginning, but it was more like a novel, but it did uh, take care of one of the secrets that I had swore I would take to my grave. So on this one, I did it just like it said it, to do it in the book, and I didn't have a sponsor at that time because I had quit going to the program. And so I went to a priest, same church and school where I grew up at, but I, um, you know, we used to go into the confessional, but now it was like I had to face this priest face-to-face, which I did. And that was the beginning of my life, really turning around, getting so much better. As a result of being in the program, a friend of mine had a teenage daughter who was struggling with the drugs, just like my daughter. And so she started going to Palmer Drug Abuse Program, and they had a um, session for the parents as well. And I had carried so much guilt, too, that that was my daughter was like that because of all this awful stuff that I had done. And so I arrived there, and here there are parents that are married, and they still have a child that's struggling, and it wasn't just because I, I was divorced. And so that, that was a wonderful experience for both myself and my daughter, but it took almost two and a half years before she became clean and sober. And she's a beautiful lady today who teaches uh, cardio challenge classes that I go to and has two children. One just graduated from college, and the other one is going into sophomore year at college. So our, so my life just really began to turn around. It got so much better and better. And in 1981, someone was in my 12-step program, AA, that told me about OA because that severe depression that I went through, I gained 25 pounds, and I could never get it off. And so she said, well, why don't, you know, and I always was looking for a fast diet. I was always trying to lose 10 pounds and then 15 pounds, and it was always these diets, you know, that, three-day diet, you can lose 10 pounds, and, and always that kind of thing. The diet, but always, you know, didn't get it, you know, going back to eating the same way. And, of course, you know, you, it doesn't work. So, anyway, I started in OA, and um, I was given a food plan. Um, I think I was just, uh, it was the dignity of choice, I think, at that time, if I remember correctly. But, anyway, 
the other person that had told me about it, she just did great, and she lost the weight that she had on. I couldn't lose the weight. And so I became very, very frustrated, but I stayed in OA and started going to OA and less and less in uh, AA. And so I did that for nine years, 1981 to 1990. I was in those rooms. I had a home meeting on Saturday morning. And I had reached the point where I thought, well, this is as good as it's going to get. I'm, I'm gonna be, not going to be abstinent all the time, but sometimes. And I just have to quit beating myself up so bad when I'm not. And then in 1990, someone came from back east to my Saturday morning meeting, and um, she was sharing that she had three years of back-to-back abstinence, and she was there. She was 20 years younger than I was and was out there attending a missionary school, and I just couldn't couldn't believe what she was saying. You know, I, I was lucky if I could get three days before I would go out and binge and be raiding a a uh, vending machine or, or trying to stay abstinent. One of my things was peanut butter and sugar-free jelly and a whole package of rice cakes because I was trying to stay away from flour. So just insanity, uh, taking peanut butter out to the dumpster because I didn't dare put it in the uh, wastebasket because I'd pull it right back out. So all this crazy, crazy behavior around food. And so one day after the meeting, I was invited to this um, Tupperware party, and uh, everybody was supposed to bring something, and I always, you know, thought I had to bring the biggest and the best, and so I brought this bakery item that was just huge, and this was a new job I had just started, and this this girl that I worked with, she was very wealthy, she had a beautiful home, and I was living in a little apartment, and um, so anyway, there was just food, 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 food. And I had a lot of pride, so I never would eat in front of other people. You know, I was a binge eater. I ate in my car. I ate in bathroom stalls. Um, I ate alone, uh, wherever I could eat. But I tried to control myself when I was in front of other people. So that day, here I am at this event, a lot of people I didn't know, and I couldn't stop going back for more food, more food, more food through all this buffet that they had. And, of course, you know, thinking that I'm the only person on the planet, I just thought that everybody just was looking at me thinking, oh, my God, look at that woman. She can't stop eating. And I always thought everybody was thinking about me all the time, of course. And uh, so then she insists that I take this bakery item back home with me. And I said, no, no, you keep it. It's a gift. I want you to, no, 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 you take it. So I had to take it back home. And I stood in my kitchen at my counter, standing up, eating the rest of that item one slice at a time, one sliver at a time until it was all gone. And I was so sick. So I called this person and I asked her, I said, you know, I... What what do you do? I just can't imagine that you have three years of abstinence. And so she told me what she did. And I said, well, I don't think I can do that. I just keep failing and failing and failing. And and she goes, well, <clears throat> I don't care whether you believe it or not. If you If you do what I do, you will get abstinent. And I said, well, what do I have to do? And so then she told me I had to call her every morning at this ungodly hour. I had to do a daily reading and writing assignment. Um, she gave me her food plan that she got from her sponsor that came from a Willow Treatment Center, I think, in Florida or something. It was called the Willow Plan. But I began. I began to do exactly what she told me to do. 
and that was in February of 1990. She started an OA How program here. We didn't even have OA How here in Denver. And um, that was the first time I experienced freedom from that obsessive, obsessive mindset of, yes, I will. No, I won't. I'll wait 10 minutes. Oh, screw it. I've just got to go ahead and eat the rest of this bag, and then I'll stop. That was totally eliminated. So I thought, this is the magic food plan. It did eliminate sugar. It eliminated wheat. And then it eliminated most um, uh, white flour. And so for the first time in all those years, I lost that weight that I had gained. But I had another addiction, and that was uh, to um, abusive um, relationships, male relationships. So I got involved in a relationship, and by October of that year, I was involved in this relationship, and I thought, I just can't handle both of them. They're both too demanding. So I'm, I'm just going to have to leave OA, and, um, which I did. And uh, my abstinence uh, hung on until about February of, February of 1991, and then I went on having the worst binging uh, suicidal depression that I had experienced since that one uh, in 1977 that I never thought I would experience again. So for a year I was out there. The only thing that kept me from not uh, doing away with myself was that my parents were going to be celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary in September of 1991, and I thought I can't do that to my parents. So God used that in this sick mind of mine. And a year later, uh, sometime in 1992, I called this person and asked her if I could meet her for coffee. She was so kind, met me for coffee, and I said, do you think I've just used up all my chances that I, I just, you know, will never be able to, to do this again? And she said, no, no, you can do it. So that, I began the process again, and I stayed abstinent from 1992 to 1997 by God's grace. And following those, uh, um, you know, what I call the rules and regulations, uh, tools of the program, doing the 12-step inventory, which wasn't done like the big book. It was, uh, I think we called it the Texas inventory, 150 questions or something, but it did take you through childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. So I had to learn a lot about myself through that process and had to ask my parents and a lot of people questions that I didn't even know because we... Everything was so secretive in my family. And so, um, but then towards the end of that five years, see, I, I just still never believed I had this seemingly hopeless state of mind and body when it came to the food. So there was still that lurking notion that somehow, someway, someday, I would be able to eat and I would be able to stop like a normal person. And I envied those people that could do that. And I wanted that, and uh, I refused to believe that I had crossed that line and that that would never be my experience. So I walked out of the program again, uh, then from 1997 up until 2005, I was in and out of OA, I was in and out of going back to AA, going to Al-Anon, um, still, you know, in the 12-step program. I did another uh, of those uh, thorough inventories when I came back the second time into OA How. And, um, but then what I realized is I dropped off after doing that, going through steps, you know, through the ninth step. And I, I really didn't develop that daily reprieve that is so crucial for us as addicts to stay in the 
10th step, 11th step, and the 12th step so that God, excuse me, can continue to grow us up in his grace and in his love and give us that ability to stay stopped no matter what the addiction is. And in 1992, as a result of uh, an experience that really didn't have anything to do with the 12-step programs, but this girl had given me a Bible, and I'd never read the Bible. People in uh, Catholic religion, at least when I was growing up, we didn't read the Bible. It was in a box in the linen closet. She gave me a Bible, and as a result of some devastating experiences, um, I was touched by God's grace and the sexual promiscuity that I had lived with for so many years. It was so devastating and caused such harm to myself and to my children and to so many others that knew me and loved me was just taken out of me root and branch. And from that day forward, I finally understood what grace meant, and I never knew that before. And um, so anyway, the, and up to 2010, I went back to another program called CEA How. And I uh, struggled, 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 trying to get 30 days, 30 days, 30 days, start over, start over, start over. Finally, I got abstinent, went through the process again, same thing. They had a book, and they gave you a food plan. You all had to be on the same food plan in that program. And um, I got abstinent, and then so that was February of 2010. December of 2010, my daughter did not come to see me at Christmas, and there had been a, a division in our family between two of my daughters. I was devastated. They were not talking to each other. And so she told me she wasn't coming for Christmas. And just like the mental blank spot, like the jaywalker and, and Jim with his whiskey and milk, I went into the kitchen. My sisters were there. I was living with my sister, and I had lived with my sister for nine years. And... Um, there was on the table, I'll never forget, it was the bowl that my parents used to have that they always had at Christmas time that looked like a bark tree on the outside and wood on the inside and all the little picks and pliers that you use to get the shelled nuts out of the shell. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just have a few of these nuts, you know, that's, that's, that's okay, I can do that. <laughs> Here I was falling away and made measured food plan, it wasn't one of my meals. But that was the beginning of another unforeseen, horrible binge. And um, I kept trying then. After It took me about three days to call my sponsor and tell her what I had done. And I kept trying to get, get back and get abstinent, and I could not. So I ended up going through quite a few sponsors. And then I just felt I I just gave up. I just thought I I can't I just can't do it. I I you know I didn't even realize how how sick I was at that time. So this friend that I knew from way back when she lived here in um, Colorado, um, I called her and she told me about this Vision for You meeting line. So here I am now listening, starting in July of 2012, and to the. Uh, uh, Overeaters Anonymous OA Vision for You meeting line. I was still working at that time, and but I would get up early every single morning at 5 o'clock. When I started listening in July of 2012, they were in the doctor's opinion, and I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, it was God. It was just like God shined this flashlight in my mind and helped me see for the very first time that I did have a seemingly hopeless, state of mind and body, 
when it came to the food, and that was never going to be different. And so I would sit at my kitchen table. They kept talking about it being like a textbook, and so I bought a little notebook, and every day I listened to the meeting, and I took notes. And there was someone else out on the line that meant so much because she had been in the program about as long as I had, was also in AA, but was never able to stay abstinent. And I had so much shame around that, not being able to get abstinent. Oh, I could get abstinent. I just couldn't stay abstinent. And so um, that gave me so much hope. And these people on this line recovered in line by line, paragraph by paragraph. I just began to see the seemingly hopeless state of my mind and body when it came to food addiction. And so that was the beginning. I, uh, I made a lot of calls to people. And um, I had trouble finding a sponsor in the beginning. And then this friend of mine told me about a person to call, and I did. And she was so wonderful to me because I didn't realize how truly broken um, I was again. And so she worked with me, and I worked uh, with her until May of uh, 2013. And then I did uh, get this Vision for You sponsor that I'd heard on the line and just felt such a connection with. And I've been working with her ever since. I went through the process of the steps, just like they're laid out in the big book. She sent me what was called a turnaround outline, and that's what I used to go through uh, the fourth step. And then I had these uh, uh, papers that were given to me by someone else on this line uh, that his sponsor had given him, where it gave you a lot of examples because sometimes I didn't totally get that. You know, where was I being selfish? Where was I self-seeking? Where was I dishonest? And where was I afraid? And then I would go through the process just like it is on page 66, and uh, I now do that with the people that I sponsor. Every time we get to this phase of the development, on the, we read on page 66, the reason why we cannot hold on to anger, we cannot hold on to resentment, it will kill us, it's infinitely grave, it's fatal, um, and I never, I never got that. I, you know, I got it with the alcohol, but never got it with the food. And so we read that paragraph together, and then we go back, and um, they use the same outline I've been given, and then we turn back to the list, and then we say that prayer for each one of those people that are on that list uh, using this uh, resentment prayer. And then we have to put that person completely out and look at ourselves and where were we resolutely selfish, resolutely looked at our own mistakes. Where were we selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? And I went after page after page after page, and I got so sick of looking at myself. <laughs> because I just didn't realize how that mindset had to come back and uh, was just uh, full of debris again, full of debris. Uh, but I, I went through that process. I had a long-distance sponsor, so we had to do it over the phone. We'd talk a couple times um, a week. And then I, got, I was retired in January of 1990, um, or no, excuse me, 2013, I retired. And... Um, so now I and I, my sister has I found a boyfriend, and so that altered our our uh, living environment. And I went through some tough times with that because I thought we were going to spend the rest of our lives together. But now I have my own little place in this beautiful apartment that's for uh, 55 and older, 
and I have this beautiful balcony that I can look out and I can see the sunrise coming up every single morning. It is so absolutely beautiful, and I am just so grateful for God's grace that in my heart of hearts today, I truly believe that I will stay stopped. In all those years that I struggled, you know, I did stay stopped sometimes, but the longest was five years. But I never, I never believed that it would last because I was building the foundation on a lie because I did not believe that seemingly hopeless state of mind and body that was my dilemma. And so I am so grateful to all these uh, people that are so faithful out on this line and who um, take calls. And I now have a network of people that I can do the step 10 with because I still get obsessive thoughts. I got some this past week about speaking. I Suddenly my mind was just was trying to write and I couldn't think of, you know, I, I was just a mess. <laughs> so I had to call my sponsor and she was, she gave me the most beautiful wisdom and, and thank goodness we have sponsors. And she said, all you have to do is be honest, be humble and give a message of hope. That's all we have to give. And that's everything that we have to give because by God's grace and these 12 steps, we are set free, and it'll work for anyone. If it'll work for me after all these years now with this addiction, it will work. And I encourage everyone out on the line to keep listening. Listen to it like it's a textbook. Uh, I sit at my kitchen table, write, write notes, and I mean, I, I just, I, and what a difference it's made. And I have to keep redoing it and redoing it and redoing it because I still, you know, my thinker is still broken but it has been renewed and restored, and I am so grateful. And with that, I pass, and thank you, Leah, for letting me share. Thank you so much, Sharon, for sharing your powerful testimony as to how the 12 steps and your higher power revolutionized your life. Thank you very much. We're going to offer Sharon's contact information at the conclusion of this recording. And now we open the floor for any questions you might have that you'd like to direct to Sharon. Star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. This is Liz. Liz, go ahead. Sharon, first of all, I want to thank you for your honesty um, and and your story. God bless you. Um, And also for sharing the incredible complexities of Overeaters Anonymous. Um, I wanted to ask you how you uh, go about in your 12-step work in sharing what is really the simplicity of getting down to business and getting out the big book and going through the steps and that, that, that really is the answer to, you know, finding recovery. Um, because I find that, you know, um, something that can be very difficult to do. And I wanted to see, uh, to ask you how you are able to do that with um, others who you speak to or in meetings that you go to. Sharon, star one to unmute. Hello? Again, yes, Sharon. 
Go ahead. Oh, okay. All right. Well, thank you, Liz, for the question. And yes, it is a simple program, but it's not easy. And there, um, you know, I hadn't done the steps this way for a long time. I did them like this very specifically in AA because there was a um, a man who came and did a, a big book step study and was for people that were struggling with getting sober and staying sober. And so we used this, you know, we didn't deviate from the way it's laid out in the big book. And that's what I found in this program that I really hadn't found in the OA rooms <clears throat> was uh, doing it exactly like it is in the big book. And I was given a turnaround sheet. It's a turnaround outline. And, and like I say, I was just that very specific. I'm resentful at the cause, what it affects. And with me and the relations, I would always put, because of this person over here, this affects my relationship with myself, that person, and my relationship with God. It blocks me off from the sunlight of the spirit, which I must have in order to live, in, to, in order to live free from um, both the food addiction and the resentments. And so we can't master either one of them on our own power. And so that was the process. It's, I stayed very simple, very specific. And, um, <clears throat> and now in steps 10 and 11, I still use that same turnaround outline. Uh, step 11, I, I have used that a lot over the years. Um, you know, when I first got in, I couldn't even sit quiet for five minutes. I had such an unquiet mind. But um, today I have other meditations that I use. Um, and then the to freely give to someone else, it has helped so much to have this guide. Because I just I'm a step guide, and we just go through it just like I was. It was laid out for me in the last two years listening to this meeting and how my sponsor did with me. So it it helps so much. I don't get off on these uh, bunny trails and stuff. I hope that answers your question. And with the food, you know, I had to get honest with myself and write down my alcoholic foods and no longer use them. Um, uh, many of these um, things I learned over the years about weighing and measuring and following a plan, I do that. I never eat in my car because that was a trigger for me. I don't eat standing up. I do sit down to eat my meals, and now I can do that because, you know, I'm retired, but um, I can do that anywhere, and I can bring, if I don't know where I'm going, but it may be around lunchtime, then I just bring my food with me. It's no big deal. And if I go out, uh, I don't weigh and measure when I go out, but uh, most often I will ask for a take-home container to cut the meal in half because you always get so much more. But I do not eat sugar. I do not eat flour. And I have a list of all my binge foods, and um, I don't touch them. I hope that helps. Thanks, Liz. Yes, thanks, Liz, for the question. Who's next? Star one to unmute. This is Judith. Hi, Judith. Go ahead. Hi, Leah. Sharon, thank you so much. I would love to hear how you live um, 10, 11, and 12 every day. Okay. Can you hear me, Leah? Yes. Hello? Okay. Yes. Um, okay. Ten, eleven, and twelve. I I really must do that because that's where I feel I really fell down. I kind of rested on my laurels and didn't stay 
uh, diligent to what it says in the big book. We have a daily reprieve contingent on our spiritual condition. So I'm an early bird, so I get up early in the morning, and I have, um, I say the third step prayer. I have a morning prayer that's regarding uh, the food thing. I say the seventh step prayer, and I say the eleventh step prayer. Um, And then I also uh, thank God that I woke up clean, sober, and abstinent. And then I try to review my day in the morning because at night my mind kind of turns to mush and I go to bed very early. So I do that in the morning, just asking God to help me see where was I resentful, where was I angry, was I loving toward all, what could I have done better. There's just a kind of a checklist um, that's I think out on the website too. Um, I got that from one of, you know, my sponsor. And then when I have something that just won't go away, you know, uh, that's, sort of our spot check spot check inventory, but if something absolutely with just those racing thoughts, those obsessive thoughts, and usually they're rooted in fear for me, but then they can activate the other character defects, then I must do the turnaround outline, go through that same basic process, uh, call someone and go over that with them and give that to God and ask God to free me from, from that bondage that has started to stir up in my mind again. And I'm set free. <clears throat> so um, that's, and then I am now uh, very privileged to work with some other people uh, in the program, sponsoring them. And um, I go to AA, and I'm also going to Al-Anon. I have not gone back to OA here in Denver. There aren't very many meetings left here. Uh, but hopefully there's quite a few of us here in Colorado, so who knows? Maybe down the road God will uh, give us the courage to start a meeting here that would be face-to-face. Hope that helps. Thank you, Judith, for the question. Who's next? Uh, Yes, this is Melinda. Can you hear me? Yes, Melinda. And if everybody Um, else could just stay muted, please, that will help with the uh, echoing. Thank you. Go ahead, Melinda. Okay, I would like to know, uh, well, thank you for your service and thank you for the speaker. And I would like to know if you started your food plan before, during, or after you did the steps. Uh, well, this <clears throat> this last time I, I started uh, with the sponsor that I got in November, and I did have a food plan, and I was uh, following it. And I did have uh, a couple of uh, slips, so it wasn't until um, I started in May of 2013 that I got abstinent and stayed abstinent. And that was when I began to do the process of the steps. Uh, That's one thing I truly believe today that I didn't used to believe, is that that food has to be down because I, I just am not able to have enough clarity in this confused obsessive mind of mine to be able to uh, be honest to do a self-appraisal. And that obsessive mind of mine, you know, it's not just the food. I, on page 52, my life was filled with all those bedevilments from the time I was young, you know. I just didn't know how to handle human problems. I didn't want any problems. I saw my mom suffer a lot, so I didn't want to suffer. I wanted to be a, you know, live happily ever after kind of life. And so I had trouble with personal relationships, couldn't control my emotional nature. I was prey to misery and depression. All of those things were a part of my life. 
from an early age, but I never got it. I never saw it, and I didn't even begin to see it until I ended up in a 12-step program. Uh, so, yes, the food has to be down, and then we do the steps, and then that really begins to, um, then we see the results, and we see the promises come true. I hope that helps. Thanks, Melinda, for the question. Thank you, Melinda. And anyone else with a question for Sharon this morning, star one to unmute. Hello? Yes. Please identify is, yourself. My name is Jean. Jean, go ahead with a question. I've been in program a long time. I appreciate hearing the story today. Um, I live in... I've lived with there are a lot of meetings I live in Massachusetts, and um, I want to know what a turnaround is. Um, it's like I just don't know. What is a turnaround? Oh, thanks, Jean, for the question. You know, there's several different uh, formats out on the website, but the uh, turnaround outline is just a sheet of paper, just like um, that lists at the top. You know, I'm resentful at, just lay, it's laid out in the big book, I'm resentful at the cause, what it affects, and then down below it asks specifically what we have to ask ourselves each time after we pray for that person so God begins to change our heart and our mind right there because we're admitting that we are sick and they are sick and, and this is what has caused all all of this inability to deal with um, uh with a heart of love and tolerance and cease fighting anything or anyone. So then it asks those specific questions that are laid out in the big book. Where was I self-seeking? Where was I selfish? Where was I dishonest? So it's just the form that is used, but what it is, and they call it the turnaround, and I love that because it's, it, that's what it does. It turns around my mind back to God and off of all this negative uh, obsessive thinking that uh, always caused so much harm in my life. And uh, if anybody wants a copy of it, I do. I do have it in my uh, computer. I'd be glad to email it to you if you want to call me and uh, give me your email address. Thanks, Jean. Jean, thank you for the question. Anyone else with a question this morning for Sharon? Star one to unmute. Hello, I have a question. Yes, please identify yourself. Hi, I'm Donna A. From Hi, Donna, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Welcome. I wanted to know um, um, how long should the food be down before one starts to commence with the steps? I'm sorry, what was the question again? How long should the food be down before one starts um, commencing going through the steps? Well, the food has to be down first. And so uh, when we go through the doctor's opinion and you get with a sponsor, this is what my sponsor had me do. You know, I had to make that list of all the foods that were my alcoholic foods. I had to list all the eating behaviors that I needed to stay away from. 
And with that, you know, then um, I followed the plan that I had had, which was my my eating uh, plan when I was in CEA house. So you formulate some sort of a, a plan based on the honesty that you've seen and admitted. And then you begin just as quickly as you can starting the steps because, like it says, you know, once you lay down the food, boy, these... Uh, you feel anger, resentment, uh, judgment, criticism, everything so much better. And um, if if you can't get a sponsor right away, like I said, I was just listening to the meeting online. And um, so I just was faithful to that until I got a sponsor. And uh, they always have in the after meeting uh, on the line people who are available to sponsor, and I also made a lot of calls. I just kept calling people and calling people, recovered people and newcomers, until I was able to find a a sponsor. And um, so, yeah, I would suggest that you begin the process. Sharon, star one to unmute. We hear you now, Sharon, I believe. Can you hear me now? Yes, Sharon, go ahead. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I don't know where I dropped off at. Um, That you were making a suggestion that she does start the process abstinently, of course. Right, right. And then, like I say, as quickly as you can, uh, find a sponsor. In the meantime, make calls. And uh, I have found that those recovered people on the line would help me so much and give me guidelines and all of that until I was able to find a sponsor and then begin that process of the steps. So, uh, I just want to know how many how many days of the food being down commenced with the steps. Um, well, for me, uh, from November to May, I still was, you know, had some problems with the food, so I had to keep starting over, uh, but I was starting to go through the process of, of reading the bill story and the doctor's opinion and all of those listening on the line every single day, but once I followed the plan and got abstinent, I started doing the steps. I think within three days of um, my uh, May 10th, so May 13th, I started uh, doing the steps the way that they were given to me by that sponsor with the turnaround outline sheet. Thank you for the question, Donna. Anyone else this morning with a question for Sharon? Star one to unmute. Good morning. This is Lorna in the Bronx. Is it okay to share? Uh, We are taking questions, yes. Right. Okay. Um, Let's see. Oh, dear. It's close my mind. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Leah. My uh, question for Sharon. Oh, thank you for your share, Sharon. And uh, I'm a new OA member since September of last year. I love OA. Just uh, my question is, um, maybe there's a difference between relapse and lapse. I don't know if they use uh, this term like we do in the alcoholism and substance abuse counseling that I've studied, but um, 
how do you suggest is the best way to, uh, you know, recover from a relapse quickly so that we don't continue down that road? Thank you, and I pass. Uh, well, thank you, Lorna. And, uh, you know, what made the biggest difference for me was the doctor's opinion uh, because I just did not get the the fact that I had this seemingly hopeless state of mind and body and it was never going to be different. And one of the uh, Sunday edition meetings, uh, I think it's July 28, 2013, Don C., he gave the example of the uh, cycle, the addiction cycle, and, you know, did it like a clock. And I remember writing that down and listening to that meeting two or three times, and that was finally what also showed me I was never, ever, ever going to beat the clock and how it starts with the restless irritable and discontent and then, you know, goes down to where... Um, we forget to remember that, you know, we had this horrible experience a day ago, a week ago, or whatever with the food. And so because we forget to remember, then that memory comes in, well, you know, uh, just a little bite, one bite will work, and I'll feel better, take the edge off, I'll feel a little bit of comfort. And, and so that happens, and then we actually take that bite, and that begins that allergic reaction in our body that sets off that whole process. And then, you know, we go through the the cycle of the binge or the spree or whatever you want to call it, and then we go back up to the guilt and the remorse, and it's all part of the addiction cycle, and then leads us back up to restless, irritable, and discontent. So that's why the steps are so, so important. And I finally realized I'm never going to beat the clock. I'm never going to beat the clock. So for me, the doctor's opinion, and I know a lot of people are willing to just take people to the doctor's opinion because it was what really made the difference in my life. I hope that answers your question, Lorna. Yes, thank you, Lorna, for that question. And thank you to everyone who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Sharon for your time this morning sharing your story of transformation with us, offering us that message of hope this morning. And I'm now going to close the meeting the way we always close our meetings here on A Vision for You, and that's with the reading from page 164 from the chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.